1: Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app
2: when a wealthy senior citizen is found strangled to death in his own home.
3: For an innocent person to be attacked like that and killed, it was very upsetting. The town of Warren, Michigan,
2: goes on high alert.
4: They didn't know who killed this man. And for anybody living on that block, they thought maybe this killer was returning.
2: A family feud over money appears to be the reason for the crime.
4: With Mr. Taylor's will scheduled
5: to be changed days after his murder, that put up a lot of red flags.
2: Or is it a nefarious con man who preys on the weak?
3: He was very capable of committing this crime. I would have bet my paycheck that he was the person that murdered Mr. Taylor.
2: When a stool pigeon talks, suspects come out of the
4: woodwork. There's a killer walking at large. Police had no solid leads. It was a classic whodunit. How well
2: do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Situated a hop, skip, and a jump from Detroit, Michigan, is the quiet suburb of Warren. Its small-town charm lures those seeking a slower pace of life without sacrificing the benefits of big-city living.
4: Compared to Detroit, it's very family-oriented, relatively safe community type of feel.
2: This warm, neighborly spirit keeps older residents from flying south to spend their twilight years.
4: A lot of retirees choose to live in Warren because this is where they grew up, where they have had generations who've lived there, gone to school there,
2: Few retirees have deeper roots in Warren than 84-year-old Charles Taylor. Charles and his wife Eleanor settled into their classic brick ranch house on Blackmar Street over 30 years ago. And things have been peachy ever since. With a loving wife and a nest egg that would make a senior VP at GM blush, the electric company pensioner enjoys the fruits of his labor.
6: My father had a cabin up north. He loved going up there and we had a blast up there. My dad loved snowmobiling. He loved fishing in the summer. He liked his deer hunting. But nothing gives him greater pleasure than his only child, Cassandra
2: Skladzen. Like many father-daughter relationships, Cassie and Charles starts
6: off without a hitch. My relationship with my father was very good when I was a child. As he got older, It was getting a little difficult with him. The downward spiral
2: begins when Cassie makes a tough call about her ailing grandpa.
6: I had to make the decision to put him in a nursing home, and that caused a lot of hard feelings between my father and myself. The rift is short-lived.
2: When Charles's wife of 50 years, Eleanor, falls ill, Cassie is
6: there. My stepmother got sick, very ill, She had been in a nursing home, I think, about three months at that point. I had no idea that this was going on. With her stepmom on her deathbed, Cassie wastes no time patching things up with her dad. My father spent every day there from morning till night, never leaving her side. From that point on, I called my father all the time, and that's how I broke the ice. But just as the relationship
2: is starting to warm up, a winter storm blows in the likes of which Warren residents have never seen. And in its wake, the Blackmar Street postal carrier will have one less Social Security check to deliver. February 23rd, 2010, starts out like any other for Cassie Skladson,
6: except she hasn't heard from her father all day. I continue to call and continue to call at 10 o'clock, I completely panicked. I knew there was something wrong. Something told me to call the police. I've been trying to reach my father for a few hours now, and I'm not getting any answer. That phone has to have rang over 200 times.
2: For Officer Timothy Colhanick, it's another slow start to the graveyard shift when he gets a call from dispatch. Colhannock has been patrolling the streets of Warren for close to a decade and is no stranger to checking in on the
7: elderly residents around town. We get a handful of calls like that from time to time. Mostly it's just the person has had their either their phones off the hook or they're not home. As he approaches the house, Officer Colhannock expects to get the what-for from a
2: grumpy old man. But instead, he's greeted by a deathly silence.
7: The house was dark. There were no lights on. It was really quiet. We found the front door was locked. Couldn't see in through the windows in the front because there were curtains or blinds. With no answer, the seasoned patrolman makes his way around back to see if he can get a better view. The first window I checked was a bedroom. There were miscellaneous personal effects strewn about the bed and the floor. Bedrooms had been ransacked. And as the officer's flashlight pierces the darkness, he
2: makes a startling discovery.
7: I observed Mr. Taylor face down in the hallway at the entry of that bedroom door.
2: Officer Kolhanek darts towards the front door and along with his partner, breaks into the house.
7: We called out to the person who was laying down on the floor. We received no response. We found Mr. Taylor's body to be cold and rigid. It was determined that he was deceased.
2: Colhannock knows a crime scene when he sees one. And something tells him that Charles Taylor didn't just trip and fall.
7: With the whole house being in order except the bedrooms, I wasn't sure as how he died. There's no gunshot wounds, no stab wounds, nothing like that. But I had the suspicion that it wasn't natural causes. At that point, we called the detective bureau.
2: Detective Robert Eight has been nabbing killers in Warren for 22 years. With a mind as sharp as a steel trap and the ferocious tenacity of a wolverine, Detective Eidt is every criminal's nightmare. But the circumstances of Charles Taylor's death on Blackmar Street will be the source of many sleepless nights to come.
3: When I arrived at the crime scene, it was weird because there was almost like two opposites going on in the house. You have this very orderly house and then... You have the body on the floor, someone going through drawers and throwing things around. And especially with not having an obvious cause of death, it was somewhat confusing. To clear up the confusion, Detective Eidt turns to the crime scene itself for answers. There wasn't much physical evidence at the crime scene. There was no sign of force entry into this house at all. That told me that either Mr. Taylor's assailant was someone that he knew, or someone that he had opened the door for and perhaps rushed in and and was able to get the jump on him.
2: But it's slim pickings for crime scene technicians who can find no foreign fingerprints
3: amid the chaos. We couldn't rule out that maybe the suspect was wearing gloves during the time.
2: However, I does uncover evidence that points to a motive.
3: The one thing that we're sure was taken in this crime was his wallet, because there was an impression in his pants of where a wallet would be. And also, when we searched through the home, we were never able to find a wallet. But what kind of maniac kills an 84-year-old
2: man over a billful than plastic credit?
3: For an innocent person that isn't going out harming anyone, to be attacked like that and killed, it was very upsetting to me.
2: When Detective Eight delivers the painful news to Cassie, it plunges her into deep despair.
6: A homicide, that just sent me into hysterics. But my hurt was more in losing him because I didn't have any family left. But her
2: sadness is not the only thing Cassie shares with Detective Eight.
3: Cassie told me that Mr. Taylor had an appointment with an attorney to change his will just three days after his death. We thought that there was a very strong possibility that a family member might have been involved in the murder because of the will.
4: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich.
1: From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones, or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.
0: Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover. And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: In Warren, Michigan, folks can't ignore the vacant seat at the local diner, and no farmer's breakfast can fill the empty feeling in people's stomachs 24 hours after the murder of Charles Taylor. Reporter Norb France has been covering the local beat for over two decades. While the grisly crime is catnip for news editors, it has a severe impact on the residents of Blackmar Street.
4: The neighborhood that Charles Taylor lived in is a close-knit neighborhood where the homeowners check on each other. Here was a man who lived alone, had no known enemies, primarily kept to himself. It shook and unnerved the folks that lived in that neighborhood. Fortunately
2: for the residents of Warren, after speaking with Charles Taylor's daughter, Cassie, Detective Eight has a promising lead. It seems that Mr. Taylor had saved up a pretty penny and his entire family was poised to inherit a sizable fortune. Everyone that is, except Cassie herself, who was cut out of the will after she put her grandfather in a nursing home.
6: My father realized he had made a mistake. I was his only child. My father's will was due to be changed on Friday. He was murdered on Tuesday. Any thought that Cassie might be involved
2: is
3: as short-lived as a Michigan summer. Cassie had everything to gain by her father living. And by him dying three days before he was going to change his will, she had everything to gain by him living three more days. While Cassie had everything to gain, others stood to lose a fortune. We're talking about a fairly large sum of money and very easily could be a very strong motive for murder.
2: Like a scene out of an Agatha Christie novel... Detectives talked to the beneficiaries in Mr.
3: Taylor's will one by one. We had to conduct interviews with all the family members to determine if anyone was involved or if there were any red flags that popped up with, with any of these people. And after speaking with the Taylor clan, investigators soon find themselves caught in the maelstrom of a bitter family feud. At this point, with the family pointing fingers at each other, Involving Mr. Taylor's murder, we really didn't have any strong clues one way or the other. It definitely complicates my investigation.
2: To uncomplicate matters, Detective Ike turns to 12-year veteran Detective Kevin Borsey. Detective Borsey is the first off the blocks whenever his superiors put out the call. This eager beaver has earned a nickname that belies his passion for police work.
5: The nickname the guys have given me at work is Smoochie. They say I kiss a little butt. All right, sir. In my eyes, I want to show some initiative. It's more volunteering than kissing butt. If if, if the boss needs something done, I'm the first one to raise my hand.
2: Smoochie does his due diligence and scours through family testimony, hoping to discover some incriminating evidence.
5: After looking through all the records, after going through everybody's alibis, personally interviewing people, Getting DNA samples, getting fingerprints from the people that were involved in the will and the estate of Mr. Taylor. Uh, everybody's excuses and alibis uh, matched. Now we had to figure out maybe a different motive and then work our way out from there.
2: In search of clues, police canvass Charles Taylor's neighborhood. Soon, a diligent beat cop finds that Blackmar Street has its own unofficial neighborhood watch in the form of a woman who lives across the street from the Taylor home.
3: She saw a white man wearing a dark colored hoodie walk up to Mr. Taylor's front porch and open his screen door and just walk right in.
2: In addition to a physical description, another keen-eyed neighbor passes along a hot lead.
3: We had tips that indicated that there were possibly some homeless people that were going door to door trying to shovel snow. There was a, a homeless shelter in the area. Detective Borsey wastes no time rubbing elbows with the less
2: fortunate down the street from the Taylor house.
5: When we focus on the homeless shelter, there's a lot of those people are down on their luck. They're looking for money. There was that possibility that one of them came across an elderly man answering his door and took an opportunity to rob him, and take his money.
2: Borsi is quickly introduced to the man who was hawking his shoveling skills door-to-door, Braylon Terrace.
5: Braylon Terrace fit the description of the person that entered the house.
2: But the hard-on-his-luck drifter is as cooperative as can be and provides the detective with plenty of info on his whereabouts that day.
5: He gave me a good excuse to what he was doing in the neighborhood. He was shoveling snow. He ran across a construction company that was working in the area, and he actually asked for employment. Along with confirming that story with that construction company, I also confirmed his whereabouts with the manager of the homeless shelter.
2: All seems in order, but Detective Borsi isn't going to let Mr. Terrace off the hook. Brayland puts himself near the crime scene and could have killed Mr. Taylor before taking the construction work. Police search Brayland's room, hoping to find something that might place him inside Charles Taylor's home.
5: When we searched the room, we came up with negative results. After doing the interview with Braylon, figuring that everything he told me was truthful and he wasn't the person that committed the homicide of Mr. Taylor, I knew I had to struggle to find out another person of interest or another suspect in this case.
2: Investigators hope the medical examiner's report will clear up some mysteries and lead them to their next suspect.
3: The manner of death in this case was strangulation. Based on the injury pattern, everything suggested that it would be a ligature that was used. The ligature is consistent
2: with a thin string, but nothing resembling that was found at the crime scene. And with no foreign DNA on the body, investigators pin their hopes on the clothing that Mr. Taylor was wearing that fateful day.
3: We figured that there was a struggle that took place. We were hoping that there would be a transfer of DNA evidence from the suspect to the victim and the victim to the suspect. Took Mr. Taylor's clothing to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab.
2: But lab results can take upwards of six months. And Warren's finest have a vicious killer on the loose. It's back to the drawing board for detectives Eight and Borsi.
5: We continue the investigation into Mr. Taylor's death. We put up several flyers. We made contacts with several residents in the area. It was on the local news. It was in the local paper. We were hoping to find another suspect.
2: Just when it seems all hope is lost, the investigation gets a shot in the arm. When Officer Timothy Colhanick unwittingly hits pay dirt
7: while on a routine police call. I received a call to assist with the investigation of an attempted murder on an elderly person. What Colhanick learns sounds eerily familiar. The suspect committed crimes where the victims were elderly and they lived off of main thoroughfares in, in their areas. Uh, Mr. Taylor lived just off of the main thoroughfare in our city. Mr. Taylor was also elderly. His house had been robbed. So I thought um, he would have some type of involvement in Mr. Taylor's death.
2: With the second attack, many fear there's a budding serial killer in their own backyard. In the town of Warren, it's not just the frosty Michigan winter that has folks shaking in their boots. In the wake of the brutal murder of Charles Taylor, News of a recent attack on an elderly woman has residents more terrified than ever before. Reporter Norb France voices the concerns of the community.
4: The neighborhood had no idea about motive. They didn't know who killed this man. For all they know, they thought maybe this killer was returning, looking for some elderly person.
2: But investigators think they have the killer in custody when a man named Braxton Fields is arrested for attacking a senior citizen.
3: The details of the crime from this other jurisdiction match the details of Mr. Taylor's death.
2: The caller tops off an investigation running on fumes. And the case shifts into overdrive when police discover a laundry list of similarities
3: between the two attacks. Braxton Fields knocked on the door at a house. An elderly lady opened the door and Mr. Fields tried to strangle her using a shoelace. Items were stolen out of the house and after he fled the house, the victim was able to escape and call the police. In addition to
2: the M.O., Braxton may have been a stone's throw away from Mr. Taylor's home.
5: Mr. Fields he had a girlfriend that resided right around the block from Mr. Taylor. So he had the opportunity to be in that area.
3: At this point, I thought that there was significant reason to believe that Mr. Fields could be involved in the death of Mr. Taylor. And after a background
2: check reveals a rap sheet longer than the assembly line at the GM plant, it's downright certain that Braxton Fields might be their man.
3: Mr. Field's criminal history included a breaking and entering conviction, armed robbery. The type of convictions that he had were all somewhat interrelated into Mr. Taylor's death.
2: And once detectives lay eyes on Braxton, he looks very much like the two-bit thug seen lurking around Warren that day.
3: Mr. Fields matched the general physical description that was given of the person entering the home of Mr. Taylor's. I would have bet my paycheck that he was the person that murdered Mr. Taylor. Hey, I don't know what you're talking Detectives grill
2: Braxton about his whereabouts the day Charles Taylor was killed.
3: At first, Mr. Fields was cooperative. He gave me the alibi of that he was with his girlfriend on the day of the murder, and... He was aware of the murder by reading about it in the local paper. According to Braxton, the
2: news item is the extent of his knowledge about the Taylor homicide.
3: Mr. Fields
5: did admit to breaking into the house of the elderly female and assaulting her, but he kept denying of breaking in and murdering Mr. Taylor.
2: Borsey's not buying it. I did not do
5: we just didn't think that he wanted to have the weight of a homicide on his shoulders.
2: Feeling the heat, Braxton shuts the interview down and lawyers up.
5: When a suspect requests an attorney, sometimes that's a red flag, like there's something to hide. He doesn't want to say anything to incriminate himself.
2: But just as investigators are ready to write off the interview, Detective Eight asks Mr. Fields to take a polygraph. And when he agrees, the proceedings take a bizarre turn.
3: Mr. Fields was using countermeasures that were basically hurting the results of the test. And the polygraph examiner picked up on these things he was trying to do, and
5: that's called a technical refusal.
2: So why would an innocent man try and throw off the polygraph
5: test? With that technical refusal, uh, it was inconclusive whether he was lying or telling the truth.
2: With an inconclusive polygraph and a hostile suspect, The case of the state v. Braxton Fields is at a
5: crossroads. We still lacked evidence with Mr. Fields. We had to look for different avenues.
2: But it isn't all gloom and doom for the investigation. Police still have an ace in the hole that might prove Braxton
3: Fields' guilt. Mr. Fields' DNA had already been collected and was in CODIS. CODIS is a data bank that stores a DNA profile of convicted offenders. We we're hoping to find
5: DNA from the suspect on Mr. Taylor's body or his clothing.
2: But until police get the DNA results back from the state lab, the jury is out on Braxton Fields.
5: We had Mr. Fields uh, incarcerated in another jurisdiction. We knew he wasn't going anywhere.
2: When investigations are at a standstill, Detective Iight seeks solace in some comfort food.
3: My favorite meal to cook is lasagna. It's my mom's recipe. I have put my own flair to it.
2: Adding his own flair to the sauce is what Detective Ite looks forward to the most.
3: Being a detective, you have to be organized. You have to have a plan. Whereas when I'm cooking, I like to just kind of freelance what I'm doing. I don't measure out my spices. I just do it to taste, and hopefully it turns out good.
2: Back at the office, Detective Eit put some new flair into nailing Braxton Fields for the Charles Taylor homicide. While police wait on DNA results, they continue to follow every lead like
5: starch on pasta. We left a tip line open. Detective force. We followed each and every one of the tips till a dead end. They want to leave any stones unturned.
2: Detectives' relentless canvassing pays off when they get a call from an unexpected source.
3: The task force that was working auto theft crimes relayed to me information that matched our scenario. It seems a confidential informant
2: struck up a friendship with a fellow inmate named Nelson Troop.
3: This informant had a personal conversation with Mr. Troop about committing some crimes in Warren. Detectives jump on the
2: lead quicker than you can say Kalamazoo And bring the CI in for an interview
5: The confidential informant stated that Troop told him that he went to do a lick in the city of Warren And he had iced ice someone during the lick When you make a reference to hit a lick It means to do a robbery And ice someone is
3: to murder somebody once I heard Mr. Troop indicated that he hit a lick and had to eye someone, I truly felt that Mr. Troop was referring to Mr. Taylor and his murder.
2: The stoolies' account is just the spark the detectives need to reignite the smoldering investigation.
5: Nine times out of ten, information you get from a confidential informant is, is reliable. We're like, here's the break that we needed. So we felt confident that we are on the right track again.
2: The finger of suspicion is definitely pointing at Mr. Troop after Detective Eight pulls his file.
3: We saw that he had several felony convictions, including felony drug convictions, felony theft, car theft, and even robbery cases. Eit believes the rap sheet could point to a murderer in the making. Who felt that this might be someone that's capable of making that jump from serious felony crimes to a murder case. We thought Mr. Troop was a very likely suspect in this case. To get the
2: proof they need, Detective Eight decides to send a thief to catch a thief.
3: We wanted to get the informant to have another conversation with Mr. Troop, and our intentions were to have him wired so we would be able to listen and record the conversation that he had with Mr. Troop.
2: If the stooley story has legs, detectives might just have their killer. For the citizens of Warren, Michigan, the pain of losing one of its own fades as slowly as the ice melts on Lake St. Clair. It's been three weeks since the grisly murder of Charles Taylor. And no one is suffering more than Mr. Taylor's daughter, Cassie.
6: I miss the companionship. I miss not having a family. I have no one to call. at night.
2: <laughs> but Warren's finest have a suspect in their sights, Nelson Troop. And according to a confidential informant, Troop bragged about killing someone during a robbery. But there's a
3: catch. The conversation that he had with Mr. Troop wasn't taped. There was no way to prove it. So police put a wire on their stoolie
2: and arrange for a meet and greet between the stoolie and Mr. Troop at a local bar.
3: We did surveillance on the establishment, and after several hours of waiting for Mr. Troop to show up, he never did.
2: Nelson Troop's no-show routine is further evidence of his guilt. Two days after Mr. Troop gives police the slip at the bar, detectives arrest him on auto theft charges. And the homicide squad takes a crack at him, hoping he'll come clean under the harsh lights of the
3: interrogation room. Mr. Troop was somewhat cooperative, but he was also kind of cocky at the same time. He felt like he didn't need to bother wasting his time talking to us. Once the braggart pipes down, detectives confront him about his boast. He fully admitted to the auto theft case, that he was arrested and charged on, but he totally denied any involvement in the murder case of Mr. Taylor. He denied ever being in Mr. Taylor's home. He said that he never made that statement to the informant.
2: When detectives question Nelson about his whereabouts on the day of the murder, he's long on lip and short on details.
3: Mr. Troop never provided an alibi for the day of February 23rd. So Mr. Troop was a suspect.
2: To prove that Mr. Troop did kill Charles Taylor, police search his house.
5: We're hoping to find some kind of evidence that would link Mr. Troop to Mr. Taylor.
2: Police scour the house with a fine toothed comb. But despite a thorough check, detectives come up short. Fortunately, police have time on their side.
5: Mr. Troop was never ruled out as a suspect. But one of the good things is, is Mr. Troop was in custody. So we still had time to build an investigation regarding Mr. Troop.
2: And all hope to solving this case will lay in the DNA.
5: We had Mr. Troop's DNA on file. We are solely waiting now on a DNA to come back from Mr. Taylor's body and or his clothing. That was our last hope.
2: Investigators have every reason to suspect Troop. But the evidence points to another inmate as well career con and alleged murderer, Braxton Fields.
3: At the top of my suspect pool at this point, I have Mr. Fields, a person that robbed and attacked an elderly female over another jurisdiction. I have Mr. Troop, who stated that he had to hit a lick and had to ice someone in South Warren. The turnaround to get DNA info from the state police crime lab is
4: about six to nine months The police almost daily contacted state police demanding these results, wanting these results, wanted it to be a high priority.
2: The longer the DNA results take, the longer Cassie has to
6: wait to get closure. I was thinking of the loss of my dad. Everything was going wrong. I never thought it would be solved.
2: When the pressure of an unsolved homicide takes over Borsi's mind, Borsi takes to the hills.
5: Camping for me is very relaxing. I enjoy spending time with uh, my children. Just sitting around the campfire is pretty much all one-on-one time with your family. When we're camping, it's a very peaceful environment. And there's nothing to worry about.
2: But back on the clock, there's plenty to worry about with Charles Taylor's killer on the loose.
5: There are times where, you know, on a lot of cases, say, you know, I give up, it's, it's over, I can't solve this one. But, Knowing a little bit about Mr. Taylor over these months, we wanted to bring whoever committed that crime to justice. As
2: the case is in danger of going icy cold, detectives finally get the break they've been waiting for.
5: The homicide occurred February 23rd to Mr. Taylor. Now in June, uh, we learned from the Michigan State
3: Police that we had a DNA hit.
2: The news makes Detective Ait dizzy
3: with excitement. I was just so happy and excited because I I never thought there was going to be a match. The details of the find
2: give police more than enough evidence to nab the killer.
3: I was told there were three areas where they were able to find DNA. The first area was his back pocket. There were skin cells inside of the back pocket where we assumed that his wallet had been taken, and those skin cells made a match. The other two locations were on the backside of Mr. Taylor's left and right hands.
2: The only question on everyone's mind is which suspect is it?
3: At that point, I felt the most viable suspect was Mr. Fields.
2: But the name from the CODIS hit is a complete surprise.
3: It did not match that of Mr. Troops or Mr. Fields. The match came back to Person by the name of Paul Posniak.
2: The name means about as much to detectives as Uper does to people outside Michigan.
3: I had never heard Paul Posniak's name come up at any point during this investigation. I did not know who Paul Posniak was.
4: Paul Posniak had a lengthy criminal history for burglary, theft, forgery, robbery, drug convictions.
2: But was it a complete coincidence that this career criminal stumbled across Charles Taylor? Investigators will soon learn the answer may be buried in a secret from Charles Taylor's past. Four months after the murder of 84-year-old Charles Taylor, Police gumshoes in Warren, Michigan, finally have a DNA match on the killer, a nefarious fellow named Paul Posniak. The name is as foreign to police as the thought of a two-seat Korean hybrid.
5: We didn't even know Mr. Posniak existed until we got DNA. He wasn't on our radar, so it was definitely surprising. Now our job was to find out who is Paul Posniak and what is the connection with Mr. Taylor.
2: And the answer to the first question points to a troubled past.
3: He had numerous felony convictions for theft-related crimes, drug use, and just based on his past record, we thought all that played a very vital part into the type of person that could try to kill someone.
2: But what's the connection between this cold-blooded con and the kindly Mr. Taylor? Why would Posniak target the beloved pensioner? Investigators intend to find out, but with no fixed address on the junkie, they'll need to be creative. So Detective Eight comes up with a plan.
3: We had found out that he had a drug habit. It was determined that the parole agent would call Paul Posnack in for a random drug test, and we made plans to be at the office when he showed up. And when he does... The ambush is
5: on. We told him we were from the Warren Police Department and that we were going to take him into the station for some questioning. He kind of looked at us like he didn't know what we were doing there or why we would even want to question him.
2: Then Detective Eid and Borsi go to work on Paul Posniak. This is where the rubber meets the road.
5: We just wanted to figure out if we can get Mr. Pozniak to tell us he was at Mr. Taylor's house. So we started our questioning by just giving him little bits of pieces here and there.
2: The ex-con is in no mood to chit-chat and asks the cops to cut to the chase.
3: They told him that he was being questioned about the theft of a wallet that happened in the city of Warren.
5: Mr. Posniak denied up and down about uh, being involved in the larceny.
2: As detectives continue to chisel away at Posniak, the cagey criminal finally coughs up an alibi.
5: He said on that particular day that we are questioning him about, that he was actually with his girlfriend watching movies.
2: When Ite confronts Posniak about his DNA being found at a murder scene, the discussion takes another turn.
3: At that precise moment, he said, well, I don't want to talk to you, I want an attorney. So I told him, okay, then we'll take you back up to the jail. And, oh, by the way, you're also being charged with first-degree murder. And I said the name Charles Taylor. And what Pozniak says next
2: knocks the socks off the veteran detectives.
4: Who? Charles Taylor. It's my
5: godfather. You crazy. Bingo. We knew that there was a connection between Mr. Pozniak and Mr. Taylor.
3: I had no idea that he had even had any sort of relationship, I thought that was a lie.
2: Posniak refuses to cooperate further, but police already have more than enough to book him for the murder of Charles Taylor. But there's one dangling loose end. Is Posniak really Charles Taylor's godson?
3: I called Cassie, and I asked her if she recognized the name Paul Posniak.
6: And I says, not to my knowledge, After searching the registration book from the funeral home, there was a name in there.
3: And she said that at the funeral for her father that there was an elderly gentleman at the funeral, and she thought that he had the last name of Posniak.
2: The gentleman in question turned out to be Paul Posniak's father and claimed that he and Charles went way back.
3: Mr. Taylor's deceased wife, Eleanor, was... Paul Posniak's godmother.
2: But when it became obvious to the Taylors that Posniak was a bad seed,
6: they wrote him off. They had not seen him for over 40 years. He had been in trouble when he was young, and they sort of stayed away from him.
3: It seemed incredibly strange that someone that hasn't seen a person in over 40 years comes over to their house and, and robs them and then murders them. Strange indeed. And Posniak's not
2: about to fill in the blanks. With Posniak's DNA on the victim and an eyewitness placing him at the scene, investigators seem to have an open-and-shut case.
3: Once again, Paul fit the general physical description of the person that the neighbor from across the street saw entering Mr. Taylor's home detectives uh, put Paul Posniak's photo into a photograph lineup, and when the photographic lineup was shown, that witness immediately pointed to Paul Posniak and said, this is definitely the man.
2: Paul Posniak isn't easily swayed by the evidence against him, and rolls the dice with the jury. At trial, he fully admits to being at Mr. Taylor's house, and for good reason.
3: Paul Posniak told the jury that On the day before the murder, in attempts to rekindle that relationship, his relationship with Mr. Taylor, he was at Mr. Taylor's home for a couple hours. At the end of the conversation, they hugged each other. That During the hug, the skin cells from his hand fell off his hand and went into Mr. Taylor's back pocket it doesn't take
2: long for the prosecution to poke holes in Posniak's tail.
4: Skin cells on the victim's hands may make sense from a handshake and maybe on someone's back or shoulder or arms, but to find skin cells in the back pocket of the victim certainly shows that the killer literally went into that back pocket. It's clear that the jury weren't buying his story.
2: On July 15, 2011, Paul Posniak is found guilty of the first-degree murder of Charles Taylor. He is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility
3: of parole. When the jury gave the verdict of guilty, I was just so happy. I gave Cassie a hug and told her that we got justice for her and for her father.
2: Based on the evidence, detectives pieced together what they believe happened on the ill-fated day of February 23rd, 2010.
5: Mr. Piesniak most likely needed a fix, was looking for money, knew of Mr. Taylor, figured he could maybe talk Mr. Taylor into giving him some money. Mr. Piesniak showed up at Mr. Taylor's door, was welcomed in with open arms.
3: I think that when... Paul asked for money that Mr. Taylor finally said, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to give you money. But Posniak
2: doesn't take no for an answer.
3: And I think at that point, a struggle broke out, a fight, at which point Paul Posniak was able to get behind Mr. Taylor and was able to strangle him to death.
5: He then ransacked the house looking for cash money to go buy some drugs. After taking the money, he left.
2: The cash is the least of what Posniak took from Cassie
6: that day. He also took a little piece of her heart. He has two granddaughters and a great grandson that he'll never get to see grow up. Charles Taylor's
2: death at the hands of betrayal has left a mark on the residents of Blackmar Street.
4: For that neighborhood, a tight knit, nice neighborhood, it's certainly lost some innocence
2: it's an end to a harrowing ordeal for the citizens of Warren, Michigan.
5: Knowing the person that Mr. Taylor was, knowing that this occurred in the city I live in, like the city my kids go to school in, I took a lot of satisfaction of solving this case.
1: Nickelodeon was kid everything. But that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon.
7: It made me wonder who was being hurt.
1: Quiet on set. An ID true crime event. Sunday, March 17th at 9. On ID and stream on Max.